reading this morning is from Matthew, chapter 6, starting to read at verse 5. Prayer. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand, pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. First time I've come to this church, but it's a church that reminds me of the one I've just left behind in Stafford, the uh, church in Doxey, which was built in 1975 and has a very similar design to this one. I think you're a bit more impressive and larger than we were, but um, it certainly feels at home to be in this uh, building with you this morning. And also, of course, when I was in Stafford, I worked quite closely with um, Adrian, uh, who was your curate here for some years. And it's good to be able to come and speak about the subject of prayer. And what I'm going to do is to base what I say on the passage that we just heard. And so if you want to follow it in your Pew Bible, then it's page um, 902 that you will need to find the passage that we're dealing with, which is Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. <clears throat> what I want to do is to draw out of this passage some of the principles of prayer that can then inform our practice of prayer. Because if we're going to think about praying 24-7, then we need to have those principles right so that it can direct us and encourage us to be responsive to God in every moment of every day, in whatever circumstances we may find ourselves. 
And verses 5 and 6 teach us that prayer is is about an inward attitude, not an external action. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So prayer is about being focused. It's about bringing all of your attention to the matter of encountering God himself. It's not about doing anything that will catch the eye of other human beings. That doesn't mean that Jesus was saying that we can't use our bodies in prayer. It's wonderful sometimes, isn't it, to lift your hands, to show that you want to praise God. It's lovely sometimes um, to use your body in other ways that are expressive of what you want to say to God. And we shouldn't ignore the importance of the body in prayer, but that, of course, is another big subject. But what it does mean is that whilst we're using outward actions, they are meant to be drawn into this heart of prayer, which is about focusing upon and centering our attention on God. Because what prayer is about is communing with God the Father. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father. By using the title Father, Jesus meant us to regard God as someone that we can be intimate with, someone we can trust, someone with whom we can share all that is on our heart. Now we know that for some people, the title Father doesn't carry that kind of connotation. So, why not be using the term mother, or, if you like, friend? In Luke chapter 11, just after Jesus has taught the Lord's Prayer, he uses a parable which depicts God as a friend. Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight saying, lend me three loaves of bread. In the end, he will get up and give you what you want. You go to the friend because you know that he is someone you can rely on, someone who will be responsive to your needs. And so that image can carry much the same meaning as that of Father. But the point is that as we approach God, we do so knowing that we're coming into the presence of someone we can trust, with whom we can be completely honest and open. And that, of course, is not how everyone approaches God. Many years ago, the atheist and philosopher Voltaire was out walking with a friend, and they happened to pass by a church. And as they went by, Voltaire lifted his hat. And the friend said, I thought you didn't believe in God. And Voltaire replied, we nod, but we don't speak. And that's how many people in Baston Hill would regard God. God would be a distant acquaintance, a semi-familiar figure. And they would think of nodding in God's direction now and again, but they certainly wouldn't think it possible to have a proper conversation with God. So what is it that changes that? 
Well, Paul tells us in Romans 8.15, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's God's Holy Spirit given to us through faith in Jesus Christ that gives us the confidence to have that kind of quality relationship with God. And how amazingly the Spirit transforms that relationship is made clear in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. There we read, we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in Jesus Christ. The words in boldness and confidence translate the Greek word parousia. And parousia literally means the freedom to say anything and everything to God. Have you got that freedom? Or do you feel that you need to skirt around God, being a bit polite and watching your P's and Q's, as it were, that you have to exercise uh, real restraint in how you converse with God? Or do you feel able to say anything and everything to him? Even when you're fed up, even when you're sad, when you're angry, frustrated, when things aren't going right, when you're disappointed that God hasn't done more in your life, are you able to share that with him and express your real inner feelings? The Psalms are fantastic for that. Sometimes they're full of praise, Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be in my lips. Psalm 77 verse 3, when I think of God, I groan. Do you do that sometimes? I think of God and I groan. And I think, has he withdrawn his presence once again? The whole gamut of human experience is given expression in the Psalms and they anticipate what Christian prayer should be like. St. Teresa of Avila, who lived in the 16th century in Spain, headed up a tremendous movement of reform amongst the religious orders of the day. And on one occasion, she was engaged in this work and she was travelling along one of the mud tracks that existed in those days in the back of a cart. And the rain was absolutely hammering down and the mud was very thick. And so in the end, the cart got jammed in the mud. So Teresa had to get out. And she got out in the pouring rain and she shook her fist at the sky and said, God, it's no wonder you've got so few friends the way you treat them. She was dishonest. She just said, you know, I know him well and that's why I'm going to tell him off. Because this is ridiculous and I've got to wade through this mud when I'm trying to do his work. The freedom to say anything and everything to God is the heart of Christian prayer. And it springs from knowing who God is. But such prayer does not have to involve a torrent of words. Prayer includes listening as well as speaking. Prayer involves being with as well as communicating with. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Prayer that is silent, that is receptive, 
that is filled with the pleasure of God's company is just as important as prayer that uses words. The story is told about the great 17th century French priest, the Courier d'Ar, who was a great um, hearer of confessions, so he was always in his church. And as he used to go back and forth into the church, there used to be a local peasant sitting in the back seat, seemingly daydreaming, doing absolutely nothing. So in the end, curiosity got the better of the priest, and he approached the man who sat there and said, what are you doing sitting here all day like this, seemingly doing nothing? The man smiled at him and said, well... When I sit here, I look at God, God looks at me, and together we're happy. That man had discovered a real depth of contemplation, of silent waiting in the presence of God. And we need to have that as part of the way in which we connect with God in prayer. And the Lord's Prayer which follows in verses 9 to 13, is an illustration of that economy of words. In the English translation, it's just 57 words. In the Aramaic, which Jesus would have used when he originally gave the Lord's Prayer, and which is rhythmic, so it's got rhymes that mean you can learn it very easily in the Aramaic, it was far fewer words than that. Some wit pointed out that the European Commission's regulation on the export of duck eggs runs to 26,000 words. The Lord's Prayer, just 57 words. Which is the more important communication? And I see in the pattern of the Lord's Prayer a number of different strands, and I'd like to explore those with you. Verses 9 and 10. This is how you should pray... Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer begins on a note of surrender. This is about yielding to God's will and purpose. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's about handing ourselves over to God, about acknowledging that his plan for the world is supreme. A few years ago, Tom Wright, who was then the Bishop of Durham, stood up in the General Synod and said to the members, do you know that in this country today there are thousands of people who want to serve God in a consultative capacity? (laughs) In other words, they want to tell God how he should run the world. They want to tell God that he isn't quite up to the mark when it comes to controlling and ordering human affairs. But of course, such an approach is alien to the way of Jesus Christ. He invites us to bow down. He invites us in humility to come before God, to acknowledge his greatness, his majesty, the wonder of his ways. Prayer, said one wise teacher, is not about bending God's will to ours. It is about blending our will with God's. So there's a note of surrender at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Verses 11 and 12. Give us today our daily bread. 
Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's about supplication. Supplication is the old-fashioned word for the prayer of asking. It's about petition, intercession. And many people find that kind of prayer difficult to understand. And one of the reasons is there, of course, in verse 8. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So why bother to pray? If he already knows, if he already cares, why bother to ask him? It's not as if we're tugging God's sleeve, as it were, and saying, Hey God, have you got distracted? Have you forgotten about the needs of the world? He's constantly attentive to them. So why should we pray? The shortest answer is given by St. Augustine. Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. God could do all he wants to do in this world without us. But he chooses to involve us. He chooses to cooperate with us. And that involves, as much as anything else, the life of prayer. When I was a boy of about ten, I had a fairly large magnifying glass. And on an autumn day, I would love to go outside in the garden and find some dry leaves. And if the sun was shining, I would hold the magnifying glass in a particular position to catch the rays of the sun and focus them, concentrate them on that dry leaf. And gradually, to my delight, a black spot would appear on the leaf and then eventually it would begin to smoke and then gradually again catch light because I had focused the rays of the sun into that particular place. And I think that could be used as a way of understanding intercessory prayer. The rays of God's love are flowing constantly towards his creation. But what he wants us to do is to position ourselves in heart and mind in such a way that we capture some of those rays of his love and focus them in that concentrated way upon a situation or upon an individual for whom we are concerned so that his transforming love through us, through our prayer, is focused upon them, bears upon them, so that they are gradually helped and lifted and that his presence changes their whole approach to life. And if we don't pray, then we let God down. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, intercession is love on its knees. And if we don't pray for others or for the world or whatever, then we are not showing our love for God and we're not showing our love for other people. So supplication is a very important part of the Lord's Prayer. Then in verse 13, we come on to another aspect which I would call struggle. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now most commentaries that you read will tell you that this is a prayer to be spared persecution, to be spared testing and trial. But I think it can also be inclusive of spiritual conflict. 
to pray in the name of Jesus, to align yourself with the coming of God's kingdom, the doing of God's will, is to bring you into conflict with many unseen forces of evil and negativity. Those forces are working to thwart God's kingdom and resist God's will. And so to be a man or woman of prayer is to do battle with those forces. If you read the story of the two men who started the 24-7 prayer movement, and in your notes after the service you'll find there's a reference to them, and it's told in the book Red Moon Rising, you'll discover that within a very, very short time of them committing themselves to that movement and launching it, they were hit by all kinds of unexpected trouble and difficulty. One of the men found within a few months that his wife had a brain tumour and tragically she died very soon afterwards. Other people found that all kinds of things went wrong in their lives. And they concluded that this wasn't just a fluke, it wasn't just a coincidence. It was the fact that because of the movement they'd launched, they were beginning to engage with spiritual forces of negativity. And there was a backlash onto their lives from that. Prayer is a way of attacking the bastions of resistance to God's will. And when we do that, we too could be in line for some kind of backlash. And enduring it could be very difficult. And I think that's part of what Jesus intends by this last petition. Do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Prayer can be a real struggle. Often think of Mark chapter 2 and those four chaps who went up on the roof and dug down through the roof to reach Jesus with the needy person. And that digging down through that roof is almost like intercession. You're breaking through the barriers to get this person to Jesus where they can receive that healing. And there could be some real digging down work in intercession. And that's why a lot of people give up on it. Struggle is a real mark of prayer. And the final thing I want to draw out of this is what I would call solidarity. Verse 14 says this, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And that, of course, echoes verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus makes it clear that if we're going to be right with God, we have got to be right with others. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus there gives some very clear teaching. In verse 23, when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there. Go first and be reconciled to your brother or your sister and then come and offer your gift. I don't think it could be any clearer than that. We need to hear that challenge and we need to act upon it by a change of attitude towards those with whom we have fallen out. It could be that they've died or that we're no longer in touch with them, in which case we just have to do the process within ourselves, making sure that forgiveness has really lodged itself 
in our heart. And if they're still alive and we're still in touch, then we've got to do something about reconciling that relationship. What does Paul say in Romans 12? As far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. So as long as you've done your bit, you've tried, you've reached out, you've made it clear that you're sorry, that you want healing in the relationship, even if they refuse it, at least you've done your bit and you can have a clear conscience. But we must be right with others if we're hoping to be right with God. And so solidarity is another mark of prayer. So those are the principles of prayer that Jesus is sharing with us in this passage and in the use of the Lord's Prayer. And I just think that we have to apply this right throughout the day, wherever we are. We don't need to be in church. We don't need to be in that secret place in order to pray. Prayer is something that can happen wherever we are at any time. And I think one of the things about prayer, Christian prayer, is that it needs to be done with our eyes open. G.K. Chesterton, a great uh, witty writer of the 20th century, once said there's a huge difference when you look at the kind of holy men of Buddhism. They are fat, they are sleek, their eyes are closed, they're in on themselves, and they're switched off to the world around them. Whereas if you look at the Christian saints, the heroes of our faith, their eyes are wide open in almost a kind of crazed look on their faces because it is this world that God in Jesus came to save and it's that world that they want to see God's love taking effect in. And so prayer can be something that we do wherever we are. A lot of you won't remember the Benedicity which used to take place in morning prayer in the old prayer book, but it wouldn't hurt to look it up. But it's a lovely song of praise. And it invites everything that's around. You wind and you rain, bless ye the Lord. You fields and you hedges and you birds, bless ye the Lord. Praise him and thank him and so on and so forth. And it just picks up all kinds of things in creation. Well, you can do that as you're driving to work in the morning. Looking out of the car, you can say, you people standing at the bus stop, bless ye the Lord. Be blessed, know his presence, be touched by his love. You people in the shops, you people um, you know, who are working alongside me in the office or the factory or wherever it is, you mothers taking your children to school, anybody that you see, you can pray for them. You can hold them up to God, you can give thanks to God for what you see. Perhaps an array of flowers on a roundabout. Perhaps some open fields with beautiful trees and, and, and a, a ploughed uh, surface and so on. It's so beautiful. You give thanks to God. You can do it all the time. Your, your, your heart can be just filled with praise and prayer. Whenever I see an ambulance go by, I always say, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Quietly to myself. I don't know who's in that ambulance. I don't know what the emergency is, why the light's on and siren's on. I don't know. But I just want the Lord to touch that person and whoever else is associated with them. We need to do that. We need to be constantly aware of what is around us. If you see someone looking really miserable and fed up, pray for them. It's important to be open to whatever God might be showing us in the world around us. Somebody called it the sacrament of the present moment. Each moment contains in some way the presence of God. When Sheila Cassidy, who has written some very good books on prayer, was a practicing GP, she said that in the window of her office, 
where she saw people, there was the, the frame of the window, the metal frame of the window was in the shape of a cross. And she said, whenever somebody told me, or I had to tell somebody that they had terminal cancer or something like that, I used to look up at that window and just think about the unbreakable love of Jesus and of how he has identified with our suffering, our pain, our darkness in the cross. This is how we can begin to develop 24-7 prayer, by being aware, by being open, by keeping our eyes alert to what is around us and what God might be showing us. And now my final point comes from a story told by Tolstoy. This story is about some bishops who were on a ship going off to do some missionary work and the wind blew the ship off course so that they ended up at some small island where they'd never expected to be. And so they dismounted from the ship and took the small boat to the coast and they got onto the beach and there they were met by the native people and there were three chiefs there. And they said to the three chiefs, do you believe in God? And they said, yes, we do. And he said, they said, do you believe that God is our father? And they said, yes, we do. And, the, and then the bishop said, and do you know the Lord's prayer? And they said, no, we've never heard that. So the bishop said, well, there you are, you're uninstructed. And so the bishops spent about 24 hours teaching them, making them learn the Lord's prayer off by heart and saying, this is what prayer is about. And so the chiefs bowed and said, thank you very much. We will teach our people this new and great prayer. So the bishops got back in the little boat, went back to the ship. And just before they were setting sail, they spotted in the distance some small object coming towards them. So they kept an eye out. And eventually it became clear that it was the three chiefs of the tribe and they were walking on the water. And they walked out to the ship and they stood just below the ship and the bishops shouted out to them, what can we do to help you? They said, bishops, we're terrified.